Good to see everybody today. Happy New Year to you. Um, we got a full house-ish, right? I'm actually kind of surprised with all the stuff going around, and it was New Year's, and it was nasty weather outside. And I know we have a number of folks joining us online, and so it's good to um, have those with us as well. Um, we have been in a series before Christmas on the life of Joseph, so we're looking at the last half of the book of Genesis. And so I wanted... I, I was thinking I could wrap that up right before Christmas, and there's just so much material there that I decided we'd hold that off, come back to it, give it proper treatment. So we're going to have a couple of weeks um, finishing up the life of Joseph here at the front end of the year. So let me give you just a little bit of review of where we've been, what we've talked about, and then that will bring us up to speed. Um, Joseph has become prime minister of Egypt. He's instructed the government to build massive storage bins. Um, they're going to hold, they're taking 20%. Joseph had had a dream that there was going to be seven years of plenty, followed by seven years of famine. The seven years of plenty, um, Joseph took 20% of all of these years of abundance um, because they were anticipating this famine. And so he put it in storehouses, had this massive construction project all across the whole land of Egypt where they stored 20% of all their grain over a seven-year period. Um, and then when the seven years of famine hit, Egypt was in a great place to be able to handle all of that. Joseph's family are among those who have now come to Egypt seeking this grain that Egypt has put away. Um, and then there's this grain reunion that takes place between um, Joseph and his father Jacob. Uh, it's a tear reunion. He hasn't seen one another for over 20 years. Joseph then reports, um, tells his brothers to go back uh, to their dad, and they bring their dad with them, and th th the dad agrees. And so they all bring, uh, basically Jacob brings the whole family uh, on Jacob's, or Joseph's request to the land of Egypt. They're going to house there over the seven-year famine, um, and everybody will be safe and fine. Um, and so that's where we pick up the story today, is with Jacob coming back to the land of Egypt with his family um, and this reunion with Joseph. So uh, our scripture comes from Genesis chapter 47. If you would, let's stand our feet for the reading of God's word. Genesis chapter 47. Uh, we're going to read verses 1 through 3 and then verses 5 and 6. Here we go. Genesis chapter 47. Uh, this is Joseph and his brothers before Pharaoh getting introduced. Here we go. So Joseph went in and told Pharaoh, my father and my brothers with their flocks and herds and all that they possess have come from the land of Canaan. They are now in the land of Goshen. And from among his brothers, he took five men and presented them to Pharaoh. Pharaoh said to his brothers, what is your occupation? And they said to Pharaoh, your servants are shepherds as our fathers were. Verse 5. Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, your father and your brothers have come to you. The land of Egypt is before you. Settle your father and your brothers in the best of the land. Let them settle in the land of Goshen. And if you know any able men among them, put them in charge of my livestock. You may be seated. Thank you so much. Now, I know that was very exciting stuff. You're, and you're, and I, I, even this week as I was preparing this, I was looking forward to the verses that were coming after this. I was planning on preaching my sermon there. But as I dug into this and the Holy Spirit just would not let me let go of those verses. So... Here, the, here it comes, all right? So I, my, my prayer and my hope is that through all of the, uh, what doesn't seem like a very um, theological scintillating text, that we will uncover some biblical truth here that'll be um, encouraging for your life. All right, so let's take a look at these verses. Genesis chapter 47 at verse 1. So Joseph went in and told Pharaoh, my brothers, or my father and my brothers, with their flocks and herds and all that they possess have come from the land of Canaan. They are now in the land of Goshen. I got a map for you here, and if you look at the map, you can see, real big letters, the land of Goshen. So it's kind of on the northeast side of the Nile Delta. Um, and this is a green pasture land ter 
territory. It was known for having good soil. I mean, this was kind of the area that might flood over from the Nile every year, and so it would bring that new fresh silt, and so the land would be refertilized. And it was a great area for a bunch of shepherds uh, with their flocks to be able to graze them. So it makes sense that they would want to be in the land of Goshen. Verse 2 says, so Joseph chooses from among his brothers five of them uh, to be presented to Pharaoh. So Joseph very smartly doesn't want to overwhelm Pharaoh with all 11 of his brothers to bring the whole horde in there. So he just chooses five amongst his brothers and says, hey, look, y'all come as representatives of our family. I'm going to introduce you to Pharaoh and we'll work this whole thing out. Verse 3, Pharaoh said to his brothers, what is your occupation? So Pharaoh has a question. His question is he wants to know what these guys do for a living. Um, now before we get to their response there in verse 3, we'll come back to that in just a minute. I want to go back to some coaching that Joseph does back, back in chapter 46 before they're going to go meet Pharaoh. He has a little conversation with him of, hey, look, Pharaoh's going to want to meet you, and when you meet him, these are the things that I want for you to say. So that's back in chapter 46. Let's flip back over there. Chapter 46, beginning at verse 33. When Pharaoh calls you and says, what is your occupation? Joseph knows that's the question he's going to ask. It's apparently the question they ask a lot of people who are new to the country. What do you do for a living? Verse 34, you shall say to him, your servants have been keepers of livestock from our youth, even until now, both we and our fathers. So again, Joseph is doing some coaching here. He's uh, telling them the answer that he wants them to give when that expected question is asked. And the response that he wants them to give has three parts to it. I kind of break this down for you here. i got a slide. The first part of it is he wants them to start off by saying your servants. Now they're speaking, th this is a, a statement of submission, right? That they say to the most powerful man in the most powerful country on the face of the earth at this time in history, your servants. So that's a way of acknowledging that, hey, we're not here to compete with you. We're not here as a threat to you. We're here to serve you and your great country. That seems like a smart thing to do, your servants. Verse number two. Second part of the response is Joseph says for them to call themselves keepers of livestock. Now, there's a very specific word in the Hebrew language uh, that's translated there to be keepers of livestock. It's the word anse, mikne, and it can be more appropriately translated cattle breeders. Now, notice those guys are goat herders, but they call themselves cattle breeders. Hang on to that for a minute. We'll come back to it in just a little bit. Number three, the third part of the response is that Joseph coaches them to say is that we're cattle breeders and that we've been doing this, he says, for generations. He says both we and our, notice the pl word plural, fathers. So this is a generational thing that we participate in. We didn't just decide to become goat herders last week. We didn't just decide to become goat herders 10 years ago. This is something that's been in our family. It's been in our heritage going back multiple generations this is what we do. You say, Gordon, I got a question for you. Um, my question is, what is the purpose of all this? I mean, why does Joseph want them to say these specific things? Why does he want them to say that we're cattle breeders and that we've been doing this for generations? What's the point of all this? Uh, why not say, yeah, we were cattle breeders, but if you want us to be stonemasons, we'll be stonemasons. <laughs> um, and if you want us to be accountants, we'll be accountants. I mean, you're the most powerful man. You know the best way for our hands to be put to use in your country. Why don't, why, don't, why don't you tell us what you think we ought to do? We'll be happy to do whatever you would like for us to do, however you best see fit. Why not respond that way? Well, that's a great question. And the answer has to do with the land of Goshen. Take a look at the end of verse 34. Verse 34 says, here's the statement Joseph wants his brothers to make. You shall say to the Pharaoh, your servants have been keepers of livestock, that is cattle breeders, from our youth even until now, both we and our fathers. And here's why I want for you to say that. So that you may dwell in the land of Goshen. So the purpose of this statement is to ensure that Joseph's family will continue to be goat herders. No, that's not the reason 
why he wants for them to be in the land of Goshen. Even though they are goat herders, even though they've been done this for generations, that's not the point of them being in the land of Goshen. But he does want them to be in that land. Um, you say, well, Gordon, why Goshen? What's so important about being in Goshen? Again, we know about the green pasture. We know that it will work really well for them, continuing to be herders. Uh, the soil there is really good. Um, but they could find good pasture land anywhere, right? When you saw that Nile Delta, it's wide open. In fact, Pharaoh says to them in chapter 47 and verse 6, his response is, the land of Egypt is before you. Take your pick. Choose wherever y'all want to be. He says, take the best of the land that we have here. I mean, this is Joseph. This is the guy who's helped Egypt avoid economic disaster, right? And so this is his family. And so it made, makes sense that Pharaoh would open up uh, the very best that Egypt has to offer to Joseph's family. Well, the answer to why Goshen has a lot less to do with economics and a lot more to do with, a with its sociological importance. Let me explain. In the mid-1700s, this is where it got, gets a little muddy, so just hang in there with me. In the mid-1700s B.C., immigrants from the Levant, the Levant is the territory that occupies the eastern side of the Mediterranean Sea, so extending all the way up from Syria down through Israel. Israel is part of that area called the Levant. And then uh, people began, immigrants during the 1700s B.C. began to seep down and settle in the land of Egypt. Guess where they settled? In the land of Goshen. That's right. You knew it. It was on the tip of your tongue. And the surrounding territory. And guess what they did for a living? They were shepherds. That's right. These people were known as the Hyksos. I believe that's a Greek term. Don't quote me on it. Look up. Check me on Google. Whatever. But um, I think it's a, it's a compound word. I'm not sure if it's a Greek word. But it's a compound word. And one of them is Hick. And one of them is Sos. I don't know which one means kings. I don't know which one means shepherd. Again, you can Google it later. But these people were referred to as the Hyksos, which was the shepherd kings. Okay? So that's kind of what they did. Um, I've got a relief for you here of an Egyptian relief, um, and it shows the symbol of the Hyksos people. Um, eventually, one of them made their way onto the, becoming the pharaoh of Egypt and established the 15th dynasty of the Egyptian empire. They would extend, this dynasty would extend through the 1600s and into the mid-1500s. But again, the surge of these Hyksos peoples moving into Egypt from the land north of, of Israel and north of Israel started in the mid-1700s, which was about the same time that Joseph's family landed in Egypt. And you can imagine with an influx of large immigrant population, this would ruffle some feathers, and it did in history. The native Egyptian peoples looked on these Hyksos with disdain and with disgust. They really did not want to interact with them. They did not want to commingle with them, especially early on. So anyone who was an immigrant who was a shepherd, I mean, the Egyptian people didn't hold and disdain their own shepherds. It was the immigrant shepherds, the ones that they know, know, knew had come from another land. And they looked on them immediately and snubbed them uh, with disdain. So why Goshen? Well, Goshen was a way. Get this. Don't miss this. Goshen was a way for Joseph and his family to insulate themselves and protect themselves from the surrounding Egyptian culture and its value system. So they land in Goshen, which is a place where other people from where they had just come from had also landed. And they were surrounded by these people, but they were insulated in a way in the land of Goshen from what else was going on in the land of Egypt. That is why they wanted them in Goshen. Look at what Joseph says there to his brothers as he's coaching them and what, what, what to say. He says in the, it's a very telling statement at the end of chapter 
46 and verse 34. It says, In order that you may dwell in the land of Goshen, for every shepherd, that is foreign shepherds, Hyksos shepherds, immigrant shepherds, are regarded as an abomination to the Egyptians. This is the way they see these Hyksos people. And they're going to associate us because we're shepherds and we're from that area. They're going to associate us with these Hyksos peoples. You say, Gordon, Joseph wanted his family. This was kind of my big question mark this week. Joseph wanted his family to be regarded as an abomination in the eyes of their host country. Friends, if it meant getting them into the land of Goshen and insulated from the larger Egyptian culture, then the answer is yes. It was that important in the eyes of Joseph and his family that they be insulated from the surrounding Egyptian culture with all of its false religion and its temptations and its program of worship. If these people, remember, Jacob arrives with his wife, his sons, their wives, their children, and it numbers them. I think it's in chapter 46 somewhere, maybe back in chapter 45, but it numbers them. There's only 66 of them that arrive. And then you take Joseph, his wife, and his two children. There's only 70 Israelites that are in the land of Egypt. If the 70 of them are going to be preserved in their faith, in the faith of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, a buffer will need to be erected that insulates to some degree the people of God from the world in which they live. So let's look at how Joseph's brothers did. All right, back to chapter 47 and verse 3. Pharaoh asked them, here's the question, we knew he was going to ask this question, what is your occupation? And they said to Pharaoh, your servants are shepherds as our fathers were before us. Now that is a little different than what Joseph had told them to say. Remember Joseph had told them to say that you're keepers of livestock, that is that you're cattle breeders. So there's a different word in the Hebrew here that they use. They use the word shepherd, which is a way of really touching off their connection with these Hyksos people. Remember, for every shepherd is an abomination to the Egyptians. And Joseph, back when he's coaching his brothers, he says to them, chapter 46 and verse 31, hey, look, when I go in before, before you all meet Pharaoh, I'm going to go in to talk to Pharaoh. And here's what I'm going to tell him, verse 31. I'm going to go into him and I'll go up and I'll tell Pharaoh, my brothers and my father's household who are in the land of Canaan have come to me. They're here. They've arrived now. Verse 32. And the men are what? Shepherds. So we're not going to try and hide in any way, this land where we've come from or our occupation, and if you want to make a connection between us and these Hyksos people, hey, look, that, we'll just work that to our advantage to make sure that we land in the land of Goshen. Because you know what Pharaoh's going to do when Joseph's family arrives? Hey, why don't you move into the palace? Why don't you move into the city with us? Why don't you become, you know, a different line of work? Why don't you, why don't you, he'll build houses for them, right? He'll offer them the very best of everything. He'll want them, and then the next thing you know, um, as they're living in Pharaoh's complex, the next thing you know, Jacob's grandchildren care a lot more about Egyptian things and the Egyptian way of life than they do the faith of their fathers. It's just the natural creep, right? of things in the world. And it's for this reason that Goshen is the target landing pad for Jacob and his family. All right, well, that's our treatment of this text for today, and so that means it's time to ask the question we ask every week around here, what difference does all this make to my life? Say, Gordon, I'm not moving anytime soon. Um, I, I mean, what, what difference is, I mean, we're, we're celebrating the new year here. I don't see how this helps me with my new year's resolution or my goals for the coming year. What difference does any of this make to me? Well, that's a really great question. I'm so glad y'all asked. Let's see if we can answer that. 
Um, when I was in seminary, I spent a lot of time in the missiology department. And missiology is the study of culture, but with an emphasis on evangelism. So anthropology is the study of culture. Missiology is the study of culture with an evangelistic influence, okay? And so I spent a lot of time in the missiology department. It's not because I wanted to become a missionary. Um, that wasn't God's call on my life. But I really enjoyed the study of other cultures and seeing how cultures change and shift over time and how those changes take place. One of the concepts that we studied in the missiology department was what I call what was called syncretism. Um, I've got a slide for you here. It gives the definition of syncretism. Syncretism is the blending of religious beliefs from various systems. Missionaries will experience this. They would lead somebody to Christ, then that person say they were raised Buddhist, and they would immediately or naturally or subconsciously mix in some of their Buddhist background and some of their Buddhist worldview with this newfound faith in Christ that they have. And the two would come together, and there would kind of be a blending or mixing of their background, of their former way of life, with their new faith in Jesus Christ. And they would call that, and missionaries call that syncretism. Um, this is part of the reason why Paul wrote some of the letters that he wrote. The churches that he was writing to were struggling to identify with Christianity and to leave behind their old way of life. They had this way of life that they used to live, right? And now they've been introduced to who, Jesus Christ, but they, don't, they weren't raised in church. They weren't raised around Christian values. They didn't have a Christian worldview. They didn't enter into this thing with Christianity with any sort of a background to build on. And so when the two came together, their former way of life and their new faith in Christ, there was this syncretism that happened between the two of them. And so Paul was trying to help them sort that out and, and unravel, if you would, this blending of the two religions. So that's a problem. It's still a problem even in our world today. How do we fix that then? How do we preserve the true gospel when we are living in this world and this world wants to syncretize us to its values? That's a legitimate question, right? How do we do that? Um, well, first of all, I think it's worth pointing out that some measure of isolation is appropriate, and it is biblical. For example, in Deuteronomy, when Moses was near the end of his life, it's the eve of the Israelites about ready to go into the promised land. Moses gives, basically the book of Deuteronomy is one big speech. Moses gives a big uh, reminder speech of everything that he's been teaching them over the last number of years. And so he says, one of the things he instructs, Deuteronomy chapter 20, verse 16, he says, But in the cities of these people that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance, you shall leave nothing alive that breathes. Verse 17, But you shall devote them to complete destruction. Why? Verse 18, That they may not teach you to do according to their abominable practices. He did not want to see syncretism between the Israelite people and the new land that they were moving into, and they didn't want to see a blending of the value systems that were there with their own. Solomon, giving advice to his son, says, when it comes to the dating pool, son, if you find a gal with loose lips, Proverbs chapter 5 and verse 8, keep your way far from her and do not go near the door of her house. There's a, the Bible saying, hey, look, we need to isolate. There's certain people in certain places that we as Christians just don't go. Uh, in the book of Chronicles, 2 Chronicles chapter 34, the young king Josiah purges Israel of all foreign and pagan religious practices. 2 Chronicles 34 and verse 3, middle of the verse, it says, In the twelfth year he began to purge Judah and Jerusalem. King Josiah is 20 years old and he's leading Israel in this purging effort. He says in verse, it says in verse 4, And they chopped down the altars of the Baals in his presence, and he cut down the incense altars and stood above them, and he broke in pieces the Asherim and the Karim and the metal images, and he made dust of them and scattered it over the graves 
of those who had sacrificed from them. Friends, I would say that is a purging effort, wouldn't you? In the New Testament, Jesus acknowledges that his followers are a different kind of people. He said in John chapter 15 and verse 18, If the world hates you, know that it hated me before it ever hated you. Verse 19, If you were of the world, because we're not, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I choose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Jesus says, look, the world hated me. And so if you claim me, just expect, don't be surprised that the world's going to hate you. You know, I won't, go, I won't say that. But um, sometimes it's a good thing when we catch ourselves. Paul writing to the Romans said, Romans chapter 12 and verse 2, Do not be conformed to this world, but rather be transformed by the renewing of your minds. That is, be different. Live different, behave different, think different. The Bible consistently recognizes, friends, that the system of this world is opposed to God's program, his design for your life. Do you get that? That the world in which we live is a fallen world, it's a sinful nature world, and that sinful nature is part of what drives the world to do the sorts of things that it does. And so if we follow the world, it's impossible for us to follow God. Amen? All right. So um, you say, Gordon, I, you know, I, I read my Bible. I come to church. I get that the world is different than the program of God for my life. But again, my question is, how am I supposed to live this way? Like, what's the line that I'm supposed to follow? Am I stay on this side of the line, not go on that side of the line? What is that? Can you put some handles on this? Um, how, do, how do I keep syncretism from happening in my life? Well, I got, um, again, Y'all ask good questions, so I'm glad you asked. Um, three ways, three approaches to keeping the world system out. Three ways um, how we can be in the world, because we're part of the world, right? We're, 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 we're part of the economic system of the world. We contribute to the world. We, we take from the world. We give to the world. Uh, we're a part of this place. We can't just, uh, you know, build up walls and, 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 and never interact, right? We're, we're always a part of the world. So I got three, three different ways um, of how we can approach this. Um, number one is we follow a program of extreme isolationism. That's, that's one way to be in the world but not uh, be of it. That's right. That's, that's the preposition I was hunting for. Um, in other words, live in a commune. I got a picture for you here. This is of a monastery. I don't know if any of y'all have been down there, but down in Conyers, just south of Conyers, is a place called the Monastery of the Holy Spirit. It's a really beautiful place. It's a very serene place. It's a neat place to go. I actually went there and typed out my dissertation several years ago because uh, it's a nice, quiet place, and nobody talks to you uh, while you're there. And so it's an it's amazing uh, little spot. Um, but Monastery of the Holy Spirit is a Trappist monastery. Um, and the monks that live there, it takes several years for them to become a monk who is uh, ready to take his vows. But when they take their vows to be at this monastery, they, part of their vows is that they will never leave the grounds of that monastery. Total isolation, extreme isolation. I mean, I think there's only certain situations where, like if a family, close family member dies, they're allowed to go off to the funeral, but then they have to come right back. Um, I was, at a, I was at a monastery in Bardstown, Kentucky. I'll just tell you this. I was at a mon monastery in Bardstown, Kentucky some years back ago. This is, well, it was a long time ago. But um, we were sitting in the, having a little meet and greet with one of the monks who was heading up the place. And he said, uh, he was just in passing, just talking about, yeah, we had a monk here one time that he ran off with some lady. And we we're whoa, tell us that story. And uh, apparently he had met a lady there and they had, he was like retirement age. Uh, which you don't retire from the monastery, but anyhow. And so he, um, 
I can't even remember the story, all of it, but anyhow. Nevertheless, he, he, he met a lady, and she pulled up in her car to the front gate, and he ran out the front gate, hopped in the car, and I never saw him again. But in any case, he wasn't supposed to do that. Well, that's one option, extreme isolationism. But even in the case of Joseph and his family, though, think about this. They interacted. Joseph and his family, they interacted with the culture around them. Even though they were insulated from the Egyptian culture, they still had all these Hyksos people around them, right? And so they weren't extremely isolated in that sense. Joseph himself lived in the household of Pharaoh. I mean, Joseph raised his children amongst the Egyptian people, and so he didn't practice this thing of extreme isolationism. So that's, but that's one option. A second option for followers of Christ is, to, is the opposite extreme of isolationism, and that is total submersion. This is where we dress like the surrounding culture. We go where the surrounding culture goes. We talk like the surrounding culture, kind of like a missionary would do. And the purpose of this is not to be one of the boys. The purpose is evangelism. It's to go into the inner city. It's to go into the brothels. It's to go into the bars. It's to go to the places where lost people are for the purpose of reaching them for Jesus Christ. Jesus did this. He sat with the publicans. He went to the home of the tax collectors. He sat down at the woman, talked with the woman at the well whose response to him was, what are you doing talking to me? A Samaritan woman. You're a Jew, an Orthodox Jewish person. You would never do this. And Jesus did. He crossed those cultural boundaries. He ate with sinners. Jesus was totally submerged in the culture of his day, yet he lived different. His values were different. His manner of speech was different. He didn't compromise on his values. He didn't set his Bible aside in order to walk into the bars. Total submersion, but without compromising on God's moral law. So that's two options there, kind of opposite ends of the extreme. Here's the third option. And this is where most of us live, is option number three is not total submersion, not total isolationism, but a hybrid. It's a finding a home somewhere in between these two extremes. You say, well, how do I do that? How do I know where I need to land, right? Total submersion or isolationism, or do I, do I land it right in the middle, or what does that look like? I mean, how do I know? Well, I can't tell you. That's up to you and the Lord to decide. Should I only work for a Christian boss in a Christian company? I, I don't know. Because the Bible doesn't say thou shalt only work for a Christian boss or a Christian company. That's up to you and the Lord to decide. Should you only shop at Christian-owned businesses? Maybe. If that's what the Lord's telling you to do. Some people may feel liberty to go and shop at Target. Somebody else may say, you know what, that place is not a place where I need to be shopping as a Christian. Well, that's between you and the Lord to decide. Please note that even at these extremes... Please note this, that even at either side of these extremes, the people who are at these extremes were led by God to be there. You see that? I mean, those monks at that monastery were led by God to live in extreme isolationism. And the missionary who was out in the mission field, who was totally submerged in the culture, was led by God to be there. Most of us live somewhere in between. So here's what the Bible does say to us, though. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 22. You're like, how in the world are you going to work that verse into this sermon? Well, hang on just a second. Paul is talking here about the relationships of husbands and wives, and here's what he says. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 22. He says, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. Verse 23. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Husbands, I want to speak to you for just a moment. Dads, husbands, heads of your household. If you are a Christian husband, what you allow into your home, the movies that are watched, the kinds of music that are listened to, 
the amount of phone time that you give your kids and internet freedoms that are granted. Men, we set that bar. That's what that verse says. And God is looking to us. God has given us the responsibility of determining for our family what Goshen is going to look like. And ladies, it may, it may not be what you want. It may not be as severe as you want for your household. It may not include enough liberty as you would like for your household. But God has given your husband that responsibility. And ladies, it's not going to be you that has to come and have a conversation with God one day about why did you allow those things in your home. It's going to be your husband who's going to have to answer that. You know, most people want to be led until somebody steps up to lead. Then all of a sudden, it's like, whoa, hold on here. What are we doing? I'm losing my liberty. My point is, men, we have a responsibility before God, given to us by God, to set those boundaries and to determine the level of isolation or the level of submersion for our families and for our households. I don't get to critique that. Your neighbor doesn't get to critique that. No one else is the head of your household that's a conversation between you and the Lord you serve. All right, let's su summarize. How can we be in the world but not of it? How can we avoid the creep of cultural influence for our lives? Number one, we can take the approach of extreme isolationism, which some do, and they're called by God to do that, to go live in a commune, and God calls some people to do it. Number two, we can practice total submersion, where we, like a missionary, go to where lost people are, and we live right amongst them. But for this, but this for, is for the purpose of evangelism, not compromising on God's values. Now, number three, we can find a home somewhere in between those two extremes, listening to the Holy Spirit of God, seeking after Him. And in the case of husbands as the head of the household, we set the boundaries for our children, our marriage relationships, the kinds of friends that we keep, what streams into our home, that sort of thing. I hope and my prayer throughout this week as I've been preparing this message is that the Holy Spirit of God will speak to each of you specifically about what's coming into your home and what the boundaries look like. What does Goshen look like for your home? And so as we turn to a time of communion this morning, may you prayerfully listen for God's voice. Allow the Holy Spirit to prompt you to say, hey, you know what? There's some liberties here that maybe we need to entertain. Or maybe there's some more severity of, 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 of boundaries that we need to create for our own household. And so I invite you to, to listen to the Lord this morning, to listen to his Holy Spirit, let him speak to you. Let's bow our heads together. Most gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for um, how you have set up uh, this thing we call life. Um, you set us up to succeed. Um, Lord, you believe in, it's all through the scriptures, boundaries between ourselves and the world in which we live. Yet, Lord, you have not prescribed exactly what each of those has to be. You, through your Holy Spirit, speak to us specifically, given our own personality types and the children that we are raising, what we know to be best. And so, Lord, we just ask that you would guide our decisions, that you would give our spouses strength in making those decisions, or that wives would support the decision that is made, and that those homes will be protected, strengthened, insulated from the creep of the culture in which we live. 
Lord, we want to be your people, set apart for you to live holy lives in the eyes of our holy God. Speak to us, we pray, Holy Spirit, in this time of communion. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Oh